Hi, this is Trixie from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a webpage that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. As always, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms that you listen to by spreading the word about California Dreaming and listening groups, and of course, by supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than a dozen exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes as well. This week, I'd like to thank Sue E., Jen H., and Aaron D. for joining Patreon, and Mo for raising up their pledge. If you would like to make a one-time donation to support the show, you can also do that through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for all of your support. Okay, dreamers, I am about 99% done with my move. And while I still had to put off the episodes that I've been wanting to do for a couple of weeks now... I did find an interesting story about a crime that took place in Southern California in 2004. And it is a story that I'm pretty sure many, if not all of us, have yet to hear about. This wasn't going to be a story that was going to get any kinds of media attention like other murders in Southern California. Like the one that had taken place 10 years earlier, a few neighborhoods and a few income brackets away over in Brentwood. No, this was not going to be sensationalized in the media. Nobody involved in this was going to become a household name like Nicole Brown or Ron Goldman or O.J. Simpson. And I searched a long time for information about this story. I looked in archives. I searched California court cases, appeals, every place I usually look. But the only thing out there is this singular article in the Los Angeles Times from 2005. And that's all I really had to work with. It involves a murder case assigned to a very understaffed and under-equipped division of the LAPD that works in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. It involves the killing of a man whose story made not a single headline at the time that it happened. It occurred at a time when the LAPD was continuing to be plagued with accusations of racism, police malfeasance, and misconduct. 
But this story would not play out the way that it did. For instance, like the LAPD detectives involved in the Simpson case. This is a story of detectives doing their hard work and finding justice for the victim and their loved ones. They hadn't forgotten what they had seen happen in Brentwood 10 years earlier. They knew what not to do. Even though there would not be a celebrity name or a notable individual involved, just a regular, everyday guy headed to work one morning. Even though there would not be a single news camera pointed in their direction, recording their every movement, they did what they needed to do to ensure the integrity of this case so justice could be had. In this 83rd episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the man in the green SUV. Detective John Zambos was one of a dozen Los Angeles Police Department homicide detectives assigned to the Watts neighborhood, along with the adjacent areas that are allocated to the Southeast Division. On December 1st, 2004, that was a Wednesday, it was a pretty chilly morning here in Southern California. Detective Zambos was the first detective to arrive at the scene of a situation located on the corner of 101st and Figueroa. There was a man sitting in the driver's seat of a green SUV. At first glance, you might think that the guy had just parked there, maybe sometime during the night, to sleep off a rough evening. Maybe he was tired, maybe he needed to take a rest. His head kind of rested back against the headrest. His mouth was slightly open, and his hands laid right there in his lap. He looked very peaceful and serene, except he was dead. Next to him sat a bag of fast food on the passenger seat. The man was wearing a gray hoodie, and on his hoodie were droplets of blood that had not yet dried. Detective Zambos looked thoughtfully, yet cautiously, at the dead man's face. He found the source of the blood droplets that had landed on his hoodie, a little round hole that penetrated his temple. A small crowd consisting of neighbors, passers-by, curious onlookers, restaurant customers. They began to congregate, whispering and murmuring amongst themselves as Detective Zambos began scrawling notes into his notebook. Emergency medical technicians soon appeared, though there was nothing that they could do to save the man's life. However, they thought perhaps they could save him a sliver of dignity. As they approached to place a white sheet over his body, Detective Zambos demanded that they stop. The evidence, if there were any to be had, needed to be preserved. Like I said, he was there first. This was his case. He was in charge, and he was not going to allow anything to compromise his investigation into the shooting. He knew in the back of his mind that the murders that happened in his division get absolutely zero media attention. It wasn't going to be like the scene a decade earlier in Brentwood with the murders of Nicole and Ron. 
with the media and cameras crawling all over the place to capture every single minuscule detail of the crime scene investigation and gathering of the evidence. Every mistake officers made, captured on camera or video. Every bit of it used to discredit the integrity of the investigation and the detectives. Regardless of this, they'd learn from their mistakes, and even though cameras were not going to be scrutinizing their every move, Detective Zambos insisted this would be a flawless investigation, start to finish. These low-profile cases, these were the ones that drove him, because he knew that if he didn't put his heart and soul into this case, the media certainly wasn't going to, and neither would anyone else. Upon closer inspection of the man seated in this green SUV, Detective Zambos noted that there were actually two bullet wounds. The one I mentioned a moment ago in the temple, and there was another one in the torso. He was African American, and from Zambos' best estimate, he looked to be about in his mid-thirties or so. He called up his boss, Detective Sal Lababera, he was the type of lead detective who would make it a point to physically go to every crime scene under his watch, if humanly possible. Other detectives, including Lababera, began showing up at the scene as well, taking note of the small crowd that had gathered that were still looking on. They did want to make sure that of those who were standing around watching, that none of them would sneak away before detectives had a chance to speak to them. Sometimes Zambos didn't pay much mind to what was going on in the peripheral, usually keeping super focused on what was going on right in front of his face. The victim, the scene, the things that were obvious, and the things that weren't so obvious. Lababera's pet peeve, though, were cases that grew cold, and he had plenty of those. He definitely did not want to add to that. You see, Lababera had commissioned his crew of a dozen detectives to construct some makeshift bookshelves inside a trailer parked behind their Watt station. On those shelves sat boxes and files and the collection of evidence from hundreds upon hundreds of unsolved murders, some dating back to the late 70s. Walking by that trailer filled Lababera with a sense of dread. And that's understandable. It can eat away at you. Each one of those files represents a family who have not only suffered the loss of a loved one, but never saw a measure of justice. Hundreds of killers that got away with it. Somewhere out there walking free. It's a heavy burden to bear. And now they stood here at homicide number 71 of 2004 for their division. Lababera looked through the witness information cards that had been gathered by his officers. He glanced at the names and addresses and wondered if any one of them had a bit of information that could help figure out who put two bullets into the man in the green SUV. About an hour and a half after Detective Zambos first got to the scene of the murder, the van from the coroner's office came to pick up the victim. The investigator from the coroner's office asked the detectives if they had any information about the suspect, 
but all LaBavera had was that the killer was an African-American male. Well, that narrows it down, one of the guys from the coroner's office scoffed. The investigator then turned his attention back to the victim. They recovered a bit of gunpowder remnants from his hands, and as that was being collected, the chiming of a cell phone began emanating from the dead man's pockets. The investigator retrieved the phone and turned it over to detectives. When I read this detail of the story, I wondered at first who was calling him. If he was due to be at work or if maybe it was his significant other wondering where he was. Whoever it was had no idea that the person that they were trying to call was never going to answer his phone again. As the morning wore on, the day having started off with the violent shooting death of this man seated in his vehicle, the Southeast Division detectives were resolute. This case would not be added to the hundreds in the trailer out back. And Detective Zambos, he was a second in command at the station and for good reason, though one would have to have a deep understanding of the man. He was kind of neurotic. At least that's one way his colleagues would describe him. He had this quirkiness about himself. He could be moody, but who isn't? He was kind of a neat freak. And this, along with, I'm certain, other issues, did not bode well for his marriage, as Zambos was divorced by the time our story takes place. And the one thing he insisted upon, at work above all else, keep your desk clear of everything, Every last bit of any file, any paperwork, anything related to any case. But of all his peculiarities, the one thing that his colleagues could be certain of was Zambo's expertise as a detective. He was the right man for this latest murder case. When the detectives got back to the station after having wrapped up what they needed to get done at the crime scene, They sat down around a table in a quiet office to discuss and compare notes. They had gotten statements from a number of witnesses who saw the shooting take place from different vantage points. One of the detectives was told that a dark blue Crown Victoria was seen pulling into an alleyway just a block away from the scene. Two individuals emerged from the vehicle, walked around to the back, opened the trunk, reached in, and pulled out a gun. One of these individuals then headed on foot down the alley towards Tam's hamburger stand on the corner. This person was described as a male standing about only 5 foot 3 or 1.6 meters tall. He was very slender, and he was wearing a black sweatshirt with a hood. When he was seen returning to the Crown Victoria, he moved very quickly, He was very excited and animated, and there was a gun clearly in his hand. They also were able to identify the man seated in the green SUV. His name was Jerry Lee Wesley Jr. He was only 35 years old. Detectives surmised that Jerry was into some shady activities. According to Detective Zambos, Jerry was in possession of some 
high limit platinum credit cards as well as some gift certificates to the Black Angus restaurant. And according to people they interviewed who knew Jerry, they would often see him in a variety of luxury cars. But in order to find out more information about him, they would need to speak to his family to find out what he did for a living, to see how it was he happened to support a somewhat extravagant lifestyle. But in order to do that, they would first be faced with the daunting task of having to break the news to his loved ones that he'd been murdered that morning. Three detectives were commissioned to make the notification to the family. Detective John Skaggs, his partner, Detective Chris Barling, and Detective Mark Arenas. Detective Arenas had just been brought over to the homicide division from the gang detail only a month prior to Jerry's murder. He was kind of struggling as the first case that he was given sort of sputtered to a dead end, added to the unsolved trailer. The three detectives piled into their unmarked sedan and headed over to the address that they had on file for Jerry. Detective Skaggs asked the new guy, Arenas, if he was comfortable doing it or if he wanted him to do it. Arenas quickly answered, you do it. They pulled up to the address. It was a small house. A man came to the open front door. He had gray hair. He was a little bit older. The time was about noon, some four hours after Jerry was shot. Detective Skaggs approached the old man and asked who he was. He answered, Jerry Lee Wesley Sr. He's the father. Detective Skaggs said, I have some bad news. There has been a shooting. Your son Jerry has been killed. Jerry Sr. fell back a little, but he managed to stay on his feet. As he said, Oh my God, he's dead. Lord have mercy. All four of them, Jerry Sr. and the three detectives went inside. Jerry Sr., 70 years old, sat down near the kitchen. He rested against the counter and then rested his head into the palm of his hand. He told detectives his son had just gone to get him something to eat for breakfast. Detective Skaggs sat across from the now grieving dad and expressed his condolences. He let out a deep breath. He suddenly threw his fist down onto the counter and then put his head down and repeated, Oh Lord, have mercy. In another quick moment, he seemed to feel a bit sheepish about his outburst and he reassured the detectives that he was okay, but asked again for confirmation. His son is dead? Detective Skaggs replied, yes, sir. He was able to ask a couple of questions, finding out Jerry Jr. was employed at Pep Boys. And if you are outside of the United States and aren't familiar with Pep Boys, it's an automotive retail and service chain. He tried to ask about his son's personal life, if he had any girlfriends, and he wanted some information about the vehicles that he drove. But Dad was pretty flustered and disjointed. He could barely gather his thoughts, his breath, and that's understandable. Detective Skaggs didn't push. Maybe it was best he left for the time being, 
He apologized for having to bring about this terrible news. Jerry Sr. regained a bit of composure and thanked them for coming. The detective offered if there was anything that he could do, don't hesitate to ask. As the three detectives drove off, Skaggs, thinking out loud, said to himself, he just left to get his dad some food. Investigating homicides in the Southeast Division was a unique thing. The one thing investigators depended on just about more than anything else, more than any witness and more than any information that they could dig up in their files, they depended on a reliable connection from the streets. Somebody well-connected in the community who the people from the neighborhood trusted enough to confide in but investigators trusted enough to obtain solid information from as well. It is a well-known fact that people in the community are pretty tight-knit when it comes to crimes like this. There is almost always someone or a couple of someones who knows exactly the right information, the right details, in order for the case to be solved. But there was one big, huge problem. Witnesses often hesitated to cooperate with investigators. The fear of retaliation for talking to police or being a snitch was overwhelming. And on top of that, the general attitude towards the LAPD as a whole was not that great either. Investigators knew that people generally thought most homicides in their division were gang-related, but this wasn't exactly the case. Once they were able to dig a little deeper just below the surface of what could have easily been written off as a gang killing, usually was about something more than that. More often than not, just a personal conflict, or somebody did somebody wrong, or somebody screwed someone over. Maybe it was over money, or revenge of some sort. Perhaps a love interest. Maybe even a simple card game gone wrong. Sometimes a murder would occur over something so petty. But no matter how petty, once the reasons behind it were brought to the surface, it wasn't a mystery, and it wasn't unsolved. Senseless, yeah, but at least they have a why. But the things that would muck up an investigation aside from uncooperative witnesses was the fact that there was the added layer of a frequent turnover within the LAPD. And then there was the media. They had this way of bringing about attention to cases that had nothing to do with homicides in the Southeast Division. The media would latch on to what they considered to be newsworthy. It could be something like an out-of-control party or something involving a celebrity. And in order to placate the media and the public, detectives would have to turn their attention to these frivolous criminal cases. And their murder investigations were the ones that the media all but ignored because they did not deem it newsworthy. Those would be on the back burner, while detectives focused on the stories that the media dictated required their full attention. This frustrated detectives at the Southeast Division to no end. So a little while after returning to the station... The telephone that sat on Detective Zambos's desk began to ring. What the person on the other end of the call had to say nearly had him jumping out of his skin. This was the break that he needed in the case. 
Prior to the call, he had been going down the list of people related to Jerry Jr., who resided outside of the Los Angeles metropolitan area. You know, because it's likely nobody knows them and vice versa. He was reaching out to them, asking questions, looking for a reason that someone would want to put two bullets into Jerry. They were looking to put together a portrait of the life of this dead man. What was he into? What was he about? Mainly focusing on the two main motives for murder, love and money. Zambos banked on the hope that one or more of them would be more willing than the locals to talk to police, and he was right. A number of family members of Jerry's related to police that he did indeed have a recent disagreement with the new boyfriend of a woman he once dated. It struck Jerry's family member so much so that they even speculated over the phone with Zambos that perhaps this new boyfriend had something to do with Jerry's killing. After getting off the phone, the gears began grinding in Zambos' head. Now he had a theory to work with. Time to see if it was one he could run with. Detectives had a hunch that this wasn't a gang thing. So when in doubt, look at the love life. That's a place things can escalate quickly, these matters of the heart. So now that a bit of time had passed, Zambos and Skaggs decided to revisit Jerry Sr.'s house. Now that they had this little bit of information, they wanted to try again with Dad to see if he would be in any slightly better state of mind to speak to them. They were pretty sure Dad would be able to shine some light on Jerry's life to help give them a direction to go with this detail about his son's love life. As they headed over there, Zambos told Skaggs that he liked this former girlfriend's new lover theory, stating, You've got the boyfriend. You've got the lying in wait. That's the death penalty. That's how far down the road Zambos is looking, from killing to death row. Everything else in between is merely a formality. When they arrived back at Jerry Sr.'s house, two others were with him. His wife, Dorothy, though not the victim's mother, his stepmother, rather, though she thought of him as her own, and Jerry Jr.'s older sister, Muriel. She sat quietly, tears welled up in her eyes. The detectives got right to the point. They needed to know if the family knew of any enemies that Jerry may have had. A look of puzzlement swept across their faces. Jerry? Enemies? Not a chance. Everybody loved Jerry. Well, what about work? Nope. Everybody liked him there, too. He got along easy. He made fast friends. No enemies to speak of. And the thing he enjoyed most in life were cars. Jerry had recently come into a bit of money from the sale of a home to purchase himself a Lexus. That's all he was about at the time, just cars. Well, detectives had to bring about the details surrounding Jerry's death with a measure of candor. Jerry had at least one enemy, and this killer approached him as he sat in his green SUV, pulled out a gun, pointed it directly into his chest and into his temple, and fired each time. 
this didn't seem like a random street crime. Jerry was targeted, so somebody had a beef with him. Detective Zambos expressed his hope that someone would begin talking. Maybe someone will find out who shot Jerry and come to them, his family, to let them know. As word starts to spread, as the chatter begins, that's where the answers lie. And hopefully, someone will come to them. Detective Zambos gave Dorothy his business card with his name and number. If any information fell into her lap, call him, anytime, day or night. Zambos and Skaggs left the home and walked back to their car. They both sat there quietly for a moment before Zambos finally remarked that Jerry had a nice family. And Skaggs agreed. Really nice. Another silent moment passed while Zambos was putting all of this together in his mind. Jerry Jr. must have something going on in his life that his family is unaware of. People just don't randomly get killed like this. He was into something. But what? They next went to Jerry's place of employment, Pep Boys. It was located a little bit north of where the shooting took place in the city of Inglewood, California. They entered the store, spoke to a cashier, and were sent to speak to the manager, 47-year-old Umberto Sanchez. They went upstairs to his office. From there, he could watch over the entire store. As the men sat down, Umberto asked how Jerry was killed. Zambos explained that he just picked up some food from Tam's restaurant. Someone approached his vehicle and that was it. Just walked up and opened fire. They asked Umberto what, if anything, he knew about Jerry's personal life. Anything at all that would lead someone to walk up on him like that and kill him. Was he having a conflict with anyone that he knew of? Anything notable that could lead to an event like this? And Umberto had a tantalizing bit of information as well. Apparently, Jerry had been paying child support to an ex-girlfriend for many, many years, only to have recently discovered that the kid wasn't his. Jerry was actively trying to get his money back. Detective Skaggs asked about how much money are we talking about here. Umberto told him it was upwards of $80,000. As they sat there listening to Umberto go on, detectives were mentally trying to link these bits and pieces of information together. Umberto described Jerry as one of his best guys. Smart, nice, easygoing. So Jerry's morning was beginning to come into focus. Underneath the hoodie that Jerry had on when he was shot, he was wearing his pep boy's uniform. Before heading to work for the day, he had run that errand for his dad, grabbing him some takeout breakfast from Tam's. But he never showed up with the food, and he never showed up for work. When the paramedics were looking at Jerry's body and that cell phone began to ring, that was Jerry Sr. calling, looking for his son, looking for his breakfast. 
The detectives thanked Umberto for his time and left their card with him as well. Give them a call if anything else comes to mind. They headed back to the car and mulled over what they had just heard. Child support to the tune of $80,000. Now there's a motive if they ever had one. And Zambos even quipped. I'd whack someone for that. The following morning, the detectives reconvened at their Southeast Division station. Detective Lababera sat at his desk looking at a quote that he had posted in his office. He read it in one of his daughter's books written by Dr. Seuss entitled If I Ran the Zoo. It read, If you want to find beasts you don't see every day, you have to go to places quite out of the way. You have to go to places no others can get to. You have to get cold. You have to get wet, too. It resonated with him and their small division. They had more work than their counterparts in other areas of Los Angeles, but their hard work was paying off. Their arrest rate eclipsed those stations with lesser numbers of cases. They had to get to those places that others couldn't. That's what kept them going. The job wasn't easy. They could be called in at all hours. Quality time with their families was compromised. Resources within the department were spread so thin. Nobody really wanted to work in homicide, especially in the neighborhoods that they worked in. Nobody cared about these types of homicides. More detectives and media would show up to the scene if a cop happened to shoot a resident's dog than they would for someone like Jerry Jr. being killed. But they kept trudging forward. If they didn't work these cases that the public and the media ignored, who would? Speaking to the families like Jerry Sr., Dorothy, and Muriel, seeing and feeling their anguish over the loss of their son and brother, that keeps them on it. Every victim meant something to someone even if they didn't mean anything to the media. The Southeast Division wanted more detectives assigned to there. They needed more homicide detectives desperately. But that meant other divisions would begin to struggle and not necessarily with homicides. If they were to transfer some robbery theft investigators from the West Side down to the Southeast with the high murder rates, then there would be fewer officers to investigate crimes like burglary and auto theft. They had a property crime issue and a shortage of robbery detectives, but the Southeast Division had a murder issue and a shortage of homicide detectives. It seemed obvious to the detectives in the Southeast that homicide takes precedence, but if you try telling that to the property crime victim, they really aren't going to care. They want their stolen stuff back, and the person who took it to get caught. By the middle of day two, Zambos was determined to stay attentive to the investigation into Jerry's murder. They had already compiled statements from about six or so witnesses at the scene. While this was promising, they kept in mind that too many witnesses could prove confusing and conflicting, especially if and when someone was arrested and brought to stand trial. They really only needed two or three of the witnesses, ideally the most credible. Zambos' partner was Detective Jerry Pantoja. 
He found himself assigned to the homicide division after he was injured on patrol. He used to work the gang unit, so the injury kind of sidelined that. His personality was somewhat of a stark contrast to Zambos' neurotic orderliness. Pantoja was a funny guy, always cracking the jokes, yucking it up, making everyone laugh. It made for a good balance between partners. They managed to track down Jerry's ex-girlfriend. They contacted her. They asked her if she could find some time to come in and talk, and she obliged, coming in later on that morning after Jerry's murder. The Southeast Station didn't really have a real interrogation room. Their division really got the short end of the stick in comparison to the rest of the stations that the LAPD was comprised of. They had an empty closet set up with some chairs and a table to use as a makeshift interrogation room, but someone had apparently filled it with filing cabinets instead. Zambos would have to talk to the ex-girlfriend at his own desk. The first question he posed, when did you last speak to Jerry? The woman didn't even answer the question. Instead, she launched into a swift denial. I had nothing to do with it. I got home, I heard Jerry's dead, and my heart started racing. Hoping that maybe Zambos could take a look at her cell phone or her cell phone records, he asked her if she had one. No, she did not have a cell phone. Well, Zambos cast his eyes down onto the floor where she had her purse and it was open. He leaned over, peered down inside, stuck his hand into her purse and retrieved a cell phone. What's this? She stayed quiet. At this point, Zambos wanted to hook the ex-girlfriend up to a polygraph. She reluctantly agreed, and that's putting it mildly. In order to take the exam, they needed to go to the LAPD headquarters located in downtown Los Angeles, known as Parker Center. She would take the test, but the results came up inconclusive. I want to take a moment to tell you about another one of the homicide detectives that worked out of the Southeast Division, Detective Donovan Nickerson. Out of the 12 detectives at that division, two of them were African-American, and he was one of them. And unlike most of his colleagues there at the station who lived far away from the area they worked in, many of them commuting from Orange County, he lived right there in the neighborhood. This is where he grew up. And he was the one who had the solid connections in the community. The residents knew and trusted him. And when Nickerson wasn't working in his free time, he would mentor for troubled youth in the community. As a matter of fact, it had only been a couple of weeks prior to Jerry's death. While working on an unrelated case, he came to know a woman, a single mom, who had a 13-year-old son that she was concerned about. He told her at the time perhaps he could take him to a game sometime. She did call Nickerson following their meeting, but he hadn't yet returned the call. Nickerson often had to keep his own opinions to himself when the others in his division would speak disparagingly about the community, the criminals, or the victims. They just didn't get it. Being close to the community, of course, had its advantages when it came to working these cases, 
but it was hard for Detective Nickerson to not take things personally. Many of their homicide victims, in one way or another, had some sort of gang affiliation. Several of the officers with the Southeast Division had a nickname for these specific victims. They called them NHI. That stood for No Humans Involved. Like I said, Nickerson just had to let this stuff go, even though those sentiments disturbed him. To him, every young black male was more than just a gang member. They were human. They were somebody's child and somebody's loved one. They all mattered to Detective Nickerson. Nickerson's phone rang and he quickly answered it. It was one of his neighborhood connections. They had some information for him regarding Jerry's murder. He had the name of someone who might know something or be involved. Will Carter. He also had some info about the possible shooter, but only a nickname and somebody who was affiliated with Carter. Nickerson quickly passed the information on to Zampos and his partner Pantoja, who was actually somewhat familiar with Carter back when he was working in the gang detail prior to the injury that brought him to homicide. So in short order, the partners headed over to the Carter residence. But as soon as they got there, they could not believe what they saw parked in the driveway. A blue Crown Victoria. The vehicle that witnesses described seeing just prior to the shooting near the alley. They didn't bother to stop and knock on the door. They doubled back to the station. They hurried inside. They gathered everyone together to fill them in on what they saw. The car from the crime scene. The excitement in the station was palpable. Now they needed to set in motion what they were going to do next. You see, they couldn't just go in and arrest Will Carter. Not yet, anyway. They needed to put him under surveillance first and to keep an eye on his home and on him. Then they needed to get their warrant to search his house and his vehicle. They decided that they would begin staking out his house the following morning, on Friday, with the assistance of the gang detail throughout the day. One thing Zambos was adamant about, keep this investigation to themselves. They did not want any uniformed officers to know that they were investigating Carter. If for some reason any of them encountered him, Carter might easily get spooked and go into hiding. This had to stay quiet, and it had to stay between them only. Later on that same night, the Southeast Division officers got together for their Christmas party at a really nice restaurant in Orange County. It was their chance to cut loose and to have some drinks and tell some jokes, and to try and forget about work at least for the time being. Just as their lead detective, Lababera, toasted his men, expressed his gratitude for all their hard work, took his drink and sat back down at the table, his cell phone started ringing. It was the Harbor Division's homicide unit calling. They were keeping an eye on the Southeast for them while they attended to their Christmas dinner. Murder never stops, not even for the holidays. Not only did the Southeast have one homicide, they had two. This time... They were only kids, two boys. One was 14, 
the other, 17. There wasn't anything they could do at the moment, just finish up their dinner and go from there. And the media would not be showing up for this pair of killings either. And it was right back to work the next morning, Friday. They had to get started early. You see, while they were having their Christmas party, the gang unit in their division had made an arrest. A young guy who happened to be near Will Carter's house, and as it were, he was armed with a 45 caliber handgun, and the ammunition in the gun happened to be the same brand as the two bullets that killed Jerry. They needed to get that gun to the lab for ballistics testing on the double. They weren't going to have to wait either. The lab knew that this was urgent, so they were going to push their testing through ASAP. The case had turned pretty quickly for Zambos. He first thought he was looking at someone interested in seeing Jerry dead as a result of issues with the former love interest, him wanting to get that $80,000 that he had paid in child support for a kid that turned out to not be his. But now he was looking at the possibility of this actually being a gang-related killing. In the meantime, two other detectives headed out early as well to stake out Carter's house. But the officers who were supposed to participate in the surveillance effort failed to show up, so they decided to take a look around Carter's property from the air. As they were flown overhead in a helicopter, they actually witnessed the Blue Crown Victoria return to the house and park in the driveway. They got back on land and hurried back to Carter's house. They called over to Zambos and Pentoja, who were still at the lab waiting for the testing of the firearm. They were told that they had their eyes on the Crown Victoria. Zambos demanded that they stay put and don't take their eyes off that car. If it leaves, follow it. He wanted to know every single person that got in and out of that vehicle. So the two detectives sat and watched the car. And not too long after, Will Carter emerged from his home with three friends. They got into the car and drove away. The detectives followed, but they weren't as inconspicuous as they thought they were as Carter noticed the novice homicide detectives immediately tailing him. So Carter pulled over. Turns out, one of the detectives had arrested Carter previously, but they weren't exactly equipped to arrest four people. They only had one set of handcuffs amongst them. So they called for backup. And it took a while longer than it should have. As there were patrol officers on duty, they should have been there in just a matter of minutes. But again, just like the stakeout earlier at the house, patrol officers from the gang detail never showed up. And here, in need of backup, patrol officers failed to show up again. Their own homicide detective colleagues ended up arriving at the scene as backup first. They placed two people under arrest, and eventually they all convened back at their southeast station. As Zambos pulled up with his partner, he spotted the blue Crown Victoria parked outside, and he was super excited. There was the car. Next up, they were going to interrogate Carter and the other individual taken into custody who was in the car with him. Zambos had done this hundreds of times, so this time 
he was going to leave it up to their two newest guys on the homicide squad, Detective Arenas and Detective Perez. One of those who was picked up on that traffic stop with Carter was a young girl. She was still a teenager. According to witnesses at the scene of the murder, someone who resembled her was in that blue Crown Victoria that morning that Jerry was murdered. The interrogation room was tiny and it didn't even have any chairs in it, only a table. Detective Arita scrambled around the precinct to look for chairs, finally finding some, and he made his way back for the interrogation. The young girl sitting across from him was thin, and she was wearing a hoodie, hood pulled over her head. Detective Perez began by saying, What we are here to interview you on is a shooting off century. I think you know about it. She scoffed at the notion and snapped back, How do you know I know about it? He let her know that if she did not want to cooperate, that she was going to be booked into custody. She reiterated that she had already informed them that she had just been picked up. As the interrogation wore on, she was a little fidgety. She moved around uncomfortably in her seat, occasionally nervously laughing. But Detective Perez kept the questions coming, wanting more details about what she knew. According to her, they were just in the car smoking. Finally, Detective Perez left the room for a breather, and that's when Arenas turned up the heat. He stood over her and raised his voice. You have no idea what you are doing. You are lying, and you are going to get yourself booked for murder today. He showed her his notepad where he had been writing down all the information that he had gathered from his investigation over the last two days. He pointed to his notes and he told her that this is what he had and it amounted to a conspiracy to murder Jerry. The teenager finally cracked a little, letting go of a single tear that made its way down her face. In the meantime, Two of their detectives were still keeping an eye on Carter's house, just in case the results on the gun were negative. And as it would turn out, it was not the gun that fired the bullets that killed Jerry. Detectives Perez and Arenas moved on to interrogate Will Carter. They started off by reading him his Miranda rights. Then they got to the point. They told him it was their belief that he was the one who drove the car to the scene of the murder and that they were looking for the murderer, telling him that they don't think he's the bad guy, but they're giving him a chance to see his way out of this. Carter did not want to look at the detectives. He was vague and evasive. Maybe he stopped by Tam's restaurant. Maybe he didn't, but he had no idea what they were talking about. But just as suddenly as he said that, a wave of emotion swept over Will Carter. Detectives could see his demeanor shifting right before them. It was this life that he lived, surrounded by gangs and gang violence. He told them, homies killing homies. They get a gun in hand and they kill whoever. I'm fed up with this stuff. I'm 30 now. They look at me as a big homeboy. My son is eight and it's Christmas. I've been home with him once for Christmas. Once. 
tears began to well. Who else my age is in the hood right now? Nobody. You can't name nobody. Every day, I want to say, let it go. I got my family. My bitch is pregnant, but no. It would be like you doing 15 years for the police and just resigning. You wouldn't do it. From there, Carter explained where he was at the time of the shooting. Simply, he wasn't there. But detectives informed him that witnesses say otherwise. He said he was at one place, and when he was contradicted by specific witness statements, he shifted his story to fit the information. It was very much like a chess match. Eventually, he fessed up that he did pick someone up that morning. He was parked near the entrance of the alley by Tam's restaurant, and he popped open the trunk. This matched witness statements exactly. The ones who saw two people in a Crown Victoria, one of them getting out of the car and retrieving a gun from the trunk. With this admission, Carter has now placed himself at the scene of the crime. At this point, detectives gave him two options. Tell them who the shooter was or face the murder charges himself, telling him it's the homies or it's your kids. Carter, still quietly crying to himself, cast his eyes down and asked, what chance of me getting out of here? Detective Perez answered, depends on how much you help. I don't know how honest that answer really was in the moment, but I don't think Carter much believed him anyway. Detective Arenas reminded him, your cousin's caught up in this too. Carter finally relented a little. Ain't nothing I could do about it. I can accept it, but my little cousin, he's got nothing to do with that. The detectives eventually wrapped up their interrogation of Carter a little after 4.30 that Friday afternoon. Their fellow detectives asked what, if anything, they found out. While they weren't able to get exactly what they were looking for from him, they got some corroboration of some of the witness statements. The next step was to go back to them to see if they had any more to add to their previous statements, which they did. After speaking to witnesses again, detectives now had a clear moment-by-moment recounting of how the murder took place. They had a good description of the person who did the actual shooting, and they had two nicknames that the shooter is known to have gone by. Now they just needed to figure out his legal name. The state of California keeps a database of known gang members, so they next turned to their computers and began looking for nicknames that match the description. The first result produced an image of a man too old to be their suspect, who they knew to be no older than a teenager. But the very next result looked like a good match. The way the witnesses described him, his gang nicknames, and he lived in the area according to the address on file. Looking at the screen, Detective Pantoya just stared. That's him. He told Zambos that they were ready to go. It was time to make an arrest. And he's just a baby. 
Zambos asked how old. Pentoha said, 13. 13 years old, about to get picked up on suspicion of murder. And in another sad twist, this was the very 13-year-old whose mother had met and spoken to Detective Donovan Nickerson a few weeks earlier about possibly taking her son to a game. The mother who called and left him a message. The mother, Nickerson, did not have time to call back. That's who they were setting out to arrest on suspicion of murder. By late Monday afternoon, they had their 13-year-old suspect sitting in one of their makeshift interrogation rooms. The boy sat slumped in his chair, a thin, slight thing, just barely over 5 feet or 1.52 meters tall. His eyes were wide, but everything else had no expression. Zambos took a look at the boy and barked at him to sit up. He complied. As the boy was in the process of being booked on murder charges, he pivoted back and forth in the chair in which he sat, and he fiddled with the drawstrings of his hoodie. From the information they gathered, this is what happened on that cold December morning. Will Carter, along with at least one, perhaps two other passengers, picked up the 13-year-old prior to Jerry's murder. They drove towards Tam's restaurant. As they passed by, they spotted Jerry in the drive-thru at the window, ordering that breakfast for his father. Someone in the Crown Victoria motioned towards Jerry, wondering if he was from a rival gang. Someone else in the car answered, I think so. It was then Carter drove towards the alley. The boy got out of the vehicle, retrieved a gun from the trunk, and ran in the direction of Jerry's green SUV. The girl who was in the car increased the volume of the radio in an effort to drown out the sound of the gunfire that was about to happen. The 13-year-old approached Jerry and fired one shot into his chest and one into his temple in full view of at least half a dozen eyewitnesses. The boy ran off back to the waiting Crown Victoria. But that leaves the question, why? Why did this boy kill Jerry? The detectives came to believe that this killing was an initiation to join a gang, and it was one that went wrong as Jerry was no gang member. He was just a guy who worked at Pep Boys, who loved cars, who was out picking up breakfast for his dad. That initial lead that they were following, the ex-girlfriend with the child support, that angle, that's not what this was about. Though they were never really able to figure out why that ex-girlfriend lied when she was asked about having a cell phone. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say just an overall distrust of police was her reasoning. Probably just didn't want cops rummaging through her phone, I get it. Investigators never did recover the murder weapon either. Nonetheless, both Will Carter and the 13-year-old who has never been identified in the media 
were both charged with murder. As far as I can see, Carter remains in prison to this day, and he will be eligible for parole in 2027. As for the boy, there is no information to be found whatsoever as to what became of him, what, if any, conviction and sentence that he received, as this was a case that made exactly zero headlines in the media, not a one. The only article I told you regarding this case came from a piece written in 2005 for the Los Angeles Times. So the day after the arrest was made, Tuesday, December 7th, it was time for Detective Zambos and Pantoja to go back to Jerry Sr.'s house, where they had gone six days earlier to deliver the bad news. This time they were headed over to deliver the good news, if it can even be labeled as such. They had the people responsible for Jerry's death in custody. Seated back in their living room, Zambos told them the whole story. They had two guys, one adult and one kid, and they vaguely explained that it had something to do with gang-related activity. And when Zambos revealed the age of the shooter, Jerry's stepmother could hardly believe what she was hearing. Her sentiments were the same as the detectives when they first learned the age of the suspected killer, that he's still just a baby. They showed Jerry's parents the boy's mugshot. Jerry Sr. asked, He did it? He did the shooting? Dorothy could only think of the suffering of the boy's family along with their suffering. It's not any less as they're losing their boy as well. They cried lots of tears that day and lots to come for sure. They expressed their gratitude for the work that detectives put into their son's case. It could have easily ended up in the trailer of cold cases, but it didn't. The solving of their son's case restored, at the very least, their faith in their police department, which was not the popular sentiment in the neighborhood. But they did their work. They advocated for the family. They did right by them. And they did right by Jerry Wesley Jr., the Pep Boy sales guy, just heading to work on a Wednesday morning. And that brings this 83rd episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or the others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime aficionados who share their thoughts and opinions on all the cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows we enjoy, documentaries, books, whatever you find that you'd like to share, please come and join us. You can follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Don't forget to check out California Dreaming's Patreon page, peruse our catalog of premium content over there, 
Just search for us at www.patreon.com slash CaliforniaPod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of an amazing group of show and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, or if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.